0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at IndivisibleRadio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag Indivisible Radio or leave us a voicemail at IndivisibleRadio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show.
2: This is Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. From
3: WNYC Radio, I'm Kai Wright. Good evening.
2: And I'm Anne McElvoy, here from The Economist. It's Monday night on Indivisible, so Kai and I are here to talk with you about the global context of the first hundred days of the Trump administration.
3: And this week we're asking the same question that is on a lot of folks' minds. Is Donald Trump a political lion or a paper tiger? His whole shtick is strength. From the beginning, he's hammered away at the idea that he and he alone can get things done, not only in Washington, but around the world. We all, for instance, no doubt remember this speech at the Republican National Convention.
1: Nobody knows the system better than me. Which is why... I alone
3: can fix it. Well, the past 68 days have obviously complicated that statement. He's lost in the courts repeatedly. He backed down from the conflict he started over the one China policy. Mexico continues to refuse to pay for a wall. And now the House Freedom Caucus has shown us all that it remains the most consequential political force in the Republican Party. Here's how WNYC's Ellie Mistal put it in a conversation with Charlie Sykes and Jeffrey Rosen on last week's Indivisible.
4: Yo, you mess with the bulls, you're going to get the horns. Okay, and I think <laughs> Trump.
5: Thanks for that's a better way of saying <laughs> it. Thank you. That was a lot shorter.
4: <laughs> I think Trump is feeling that across the board. Right? Um, he's 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 not been very nice to Congress. He's having trouble with his care law. He's not been really nice to the intelligence community. He's having troubles there. He's not been very nice to the judiciary. He's having troubles there. Um, Trump is learning that he's not an emperor.
3: So, mess with the bulls, got the horns, listeners. Do you agree? If you voted for Trump primarily because you liked his strength, we want to hear from you. What are you thinking and feeling right now? If you voted for him because you thought, this guy, he is strong. That's what we need. Call us at 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. Or tweet us using the hashtag radio. And even if you didn't vote for Trump, but if part of if the part of his message that really appealed to you, this I can do it. I can fix it. I'm a strongman persona. persona. If that is what appealed to you, even if you didn't vote for him, what are you thinking now? Are you less impressed with him? Or maybe do you think this whole narrative that he's failing is just totally off base? Call us at 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255.
2: Well, a strong man in politics certainly has a lasting appeal and if we think we're too modern to fall for the idea, well, just look around the world. Vladimir Putin styles himself as the horse-riding tiger fondling sort, as much in charge of the natural world as inside the Kremlin's walls. Over in China, President Xi, who's visiting Donald Trump this week, if you can squeeze past all those outraged healthcare lobbyists, he's preparing a five-year party congress to consolidate power in Beijing. Over in Poland, President Yaroslav Yakutinsky has eroded checks on his party's power. And next door in more democratic Germany, Angela Merkel is running for election for a fourth time as the only candidate who's strong enough to deal with Europe's many troubles. So, where does Donald Trump, who's styled himself as America's strongman, answer to the domestic and international problems? Where does he figure? In some ways, he reminds me a bit of Margaret Thatcher. She perfected a style of government in Britain in the 80s that made autocracy electable. I remember seeing notes she'd written, Kai, on government papers and they just said in this very firm black ink, no, no, no. (laughs) I don't think whatever idea she was referring to stood much of a chance of getting onto the statute book. So is Donald Trump just following in this tradition of strong leaders or is it something a bit more pernicious? An author and academic, who studied post Cold War power play in depth is Francis Fukuyama of Stanford University. He's just engaged with the question of whether Trump as president is strongman or political sheep in wolf's clothing in a column for Politico's today. Hello there, Francis.
5: Hi, how are you?
2: I'm very well and good to talk to you again. So, my first question to you is why does the health care bill chaos lead you to think that the president is weak as opposed to just outmaneuvered, which can happen to White House incumbents, we know?
5: Well, I think the problem begins with Donald Trump's profound ignorance of the way the American political system works. Uh, He put himself forward as a CEO president that he could make decisive actions like a CEO, like he did in his own business. And I think it shows this fundamental lack of understanding of the way the American system works, which is a constitutional system of separated powers, of checks and balances in which... Presidents are actually pretty weak. The only real ability they have is to build coalitions and use their bully pulpit to persuade people. And he's just been incredibly ineffective at at that. And I think uh, this can't, you know, so he's done this series of executive orders, which is his preferred way of operating. But that's not our system. Our system, the powers reside in Congress. And I think he showed that he does not understand Congress and, and how to get things through that body.
2: In fairness, he wouldn't be the first president to come a cropper on health care reform. It's happened since Truman, and it certainly uh, happened to Bill Clinton in the first presidency. But what's so different about the Donald Trump case? In many ways, he's sort of sui generis. His own sort of power and his own problems. Why is he distinct from what we've seen before?
5: Well, you know, he said during the campaign that on day one, he's going to replace uh, day one of his administration, he's going to replace Obamacare with something wonderful that will be cheaper, that will cover more people, you know, all these promises that anyone that knows anything about health care understands you couldn't possibly uh, accomplish. And I think that that was the first mistake that he made is just raising expectations. And that, I think, proceeded out of his own lack of of knowledge of the field, so he admitted a couple of weeks ago, "Oh, gee, healthcare is actually a lot more complicated than anyone understood." What well, translated into real English that means it's much more complicated than I understood. Plenty of people knew that if you actually wanted to do. Healthcare reform in a competent way, you would have to hold hearings, you'd have to consult yes. with interest groups, you know, and so forth. And he just did and not it's understand it. And it's not it.
2: really the, the Trump way, is it? He, he didn't campaign on I'm a good listener or bring me your great ideas and we'll have a look and see how we could square the circle. Now, you and I have both been fascinated by the Cold War and what came after. So I, I'd like to widen the lens a bit at this point and ask you, does Donald Trump remind you of other autocrats? Or is he a bit of a, an amateur in the field? He stars himself as the, as the man who can, as, as Kai reflected uh, at the top of the show. But it's, it's getting a bit haywire quite early on for someone who, I think, said in another speech, you're going to get so tired of winning that you win so much, <laughs> you're going to get fed up with it.
5: Yeah, well, I think that the... Uh the comparisons that some people made with Mussolini or Hitler are just way out of line because
2: well, they were foolish comparisons to make then. Yeah,
5: I mean they're, they're foolish comparisons. I think the more appropriate ones would be to some Latin American populists like Juan Perón in Argentina. But even compared to Juan Perón, you know, Trump, I think, is still pretty much an amateur because he doesn't really understand, I think, the dynamics of power in our particular. Uh, in our particular system. And so Perón, you know, at least was very successful. And he, you know, he stayed in power for for many years. He built a, just a hugely loyal following. Trump has really not been able to reach out beyond this very narrow working class base that, you know, got him the, the right number of seats in the electoral college to become uh, president. And therefore i think is going to be much less successful than than juan peron silvio berlusconi is another person that i would compare him to who basically mm-hmm. wasted a big opportunity in reform in in italy uh because he got mired in corruption scandals i think that you know looks to be more donald trump's fate but even then Berlusconi was around for 20 years and I don't anticipate Trump will be around for anything close to that. But
2: I suspect he doesn't want to measure himself only against someone like Berlusconi. He likes to go mano-mano a bit and he's, he has the, the whole macho drive to do so or to talk in that way with someone like Vladimir Putin. He puts himself sometimes alongside him and sometimes seems to sort of see him as the guy he's, he's trying to match. Well, short of, of getting a tame tiger to wrestle in the D.C. area, how could he go about that?
5: Well, in foreign policy, so this is what's really worrisome. Uh, a th- per- a presidents, American presidents, don't have a lot of authority over things like ordinary legislation, like health care, because it involves spending money, and that's Congress's responsibility. He can do things in foreign policy. Uh, that's the, the area where you've got a scope for unilateral action. He's already uh, loosened some of the rules of engagement in terms of how we're fighting ISIS in uh, Iraq and Syria. And I think that if he wants to go mano a mano, he won't do it with Putin, but he'll do it with somebody, uh, somebody out there that's not an American. Uh, And that's the point at which you could, you know, I mean, he's sitting on top of the world's largest military arsenal by far. And that's the area, I think, where he could really exercise some real unilateral action.
2: And yet he's quite cautious, isn't he? We know he's he's entertaining President Xi this week. He's, uh, If anything, he's buddied up a bit too close for comfort with with Vladimir Putin. Probably the only major world leader that he seems to have gone out of his way to annoy is Angela Merkel. And, And that's quite interesting because she's not autocratic, but she's certainly someone who has a very firm hand at the top of German politics. She's styling herself this year as the woman Germany can't get by without.
5: Well, yes, he's tough with all of our democratic allies. So he's also been quite annoying to uh, uh, Malcolm Turnbull, the prime minister of Australia. He really annoyed the... That's know, the true, British. actually.
2: One, one forgets with the passing of the weeks, the number of people that Donald Trump has, yeah. uh, has annoyed. That's a fair fair point. <laughs> well, well,
5: so it... I'm sorry, go ahead.
3: Okay. Well, I, sorry to interrupt you, Francis. I was going to say we're going to bring in some of the callers here and see, and, and see if they agree with what we're talking about. Uh, and, and we're going to start with Aaron in Raleigh, North Carolina. Aaron, how you doing? You're on Indivisible.
0: Great. Uh, thanks so much for uh, giving me the opportunity to be on the show. I think you guys are doing really, really great work. And I really love listening to everything you've done so far.
3: Well, thank you, Aaron. What, so, so, so were you a Trump supporter who, who was drawn to him by his strength? Or, or are you a Trump supporter who's drawn to him by his strength?
0: uh i i was never for trump during the um during the general or even during the primaries um i'm a democrat so i couldn't do anything to him during the primaries anyway um but no i actually i ended up voting for gary johnson but i and i mentioned a little bit during the screening that i really i really have been impressed isn't really the best way to put it but i have Kind of enjoyed seeing the consistency he's shown, even if I don't necessarily uh, agree with the principles of um, his political ideology or exactly the specifics of what he's doing. Um, He did say, I'm going to go in here and I'm going to do things my way, and I'm really going to be a forceful hand within government. And he has done that, um, whether to our benefit or detriment, either way.
3: So that's interesting you're, you're, you 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 we, we thought we were getting people who would have been perhaps who who were into his strength and perhaps turned off, but it's the, it's vice versa. you see his strength what so, so what are some specific things aaron what what are what are the things that he's done that are that show you his strength that, in a consistent
0: way well uh, well very recently like um the with, with the uh with the house trying to get together this crazy amalgamation of support for um for their healthcare uh repeal bill that they they ultimately couldn't do. And in some ways I think it does take strength, and I think he exhibited strength in being willing to walk away from uh from the table. Like he was willing to say, listen, we're not going to deal with this anymore. We're just going to stop and if you want to handle this later, you can handle this later. Um, especially when he he rode so hard on that point and the GOP for the greater part of this last decade has ridden on that point of getting rid of uh the ACA. I think it did take some strength to say I've gotten way in over my head, and we're not going to deal with this right now. I'm not willing to fight with the Freedom Caucus and and sort of step back.
3: Thanks for that, Aaron Francis. What do you think of that? This idea, because you know, I mean, this is what Steve Bannon, the chief strategist, has also said: is that listen, what, what the main thing here is that we are always going to be consistent to what we ran on. We're going to keep doing it. We're going to keep talking about it, uh, and that is true. Is that you know? What do you think? Is that is that is that a, a sign of actual success as opposed to? Well,
5: I think uh, you know. Uh... The mark of a, a, a good politician is you don't pick fights that you know you can't win, or you're very unlikely to win. Uh, so I don't think that that demonstrates strength at all. I think it demonstrates the fact that he did get in over his head and uh, uh, and he lost in a in a in a big way. Uh, so I think that you know I, I think the area where you could actually say he's kind of unafraid is he's really willing to say things that are untrue or that fly in the face of every convention or norm that we've had about presidential dignity and the way presidents ought to act. And he does not seem to really, you know, he's not backed off of any of that. Now, I actually don't know whether I would regard that as strength. I think it's kind of foolhardy. It certainly does make him actually popular with his But I don't think it really helps him uh, govern the country because it's basically undermined his credibility on so many different issues that I'm not sure in future encounters whether you know, his opponents or potential allies or coalition partners are really going to take him all that seriously.
2: Well, I don't know. I think my challenge back to you, Francis, might be, I think you've, you've brought up a very interesting distinction between fearlessness and, and recklessness and callers might have their own views on what they, they find to be fearless about Trump and what they find to be dangerously reckless. But I suspect that he has actually in some senses changed the rules of the game that you've got a lot of people thinking about being future challengers or what it might even look like on either side of the aisle who are thinking I've got to come up with something that connects very directly and that does seem to be part of his brand that he is just not strong in the sense of being consistent but strong in the sense of not caring what other people think about him
5: well I think that's absolutely right you know I think the core of his appeal and I must say this I, I have some sympathy with this is his taking on a political correctness that uh uh, you know, in in, uh, in the HBO show Veep, you know, there's this one scene where the, you know, the new president uh, sees this really ugly painting on the wall and she says, get rid of that. And somebody says, no, no, that was written, that was done by a Native American artist. You, you'll offend them if you take the painting out. And so mm. she has to live with the ugly painting. And so, you know, I think that there's a lot of that in our society where there are things that people understand to be true that you really can't talk about honestly and I think Trump, you know, by refusing to back down as he did, you know, after the, after the you know, the, the groping tape and a lot of other things, uh, you know, convinced people that, that he's at least honest, even if he isn't right all the time. And I think that probably still continues to contribute to his appeal.
2: It'd be very it, interesting, wouldn't it, Kai, to hear from callers who were attracted by strength, whatever they thought uh, that to be, as the presidency goes on and how they feel now.
3: Well, and I wonder, you know, on on your point, Francis, about the political correctness. You know, it's it's uh, it, it, it's it's fine to challenge it until you're the you're the. The Native American in the painting that's being thrown out, <laughs> and you know, right, right, uh, and and then the challenge of political correctness looks looks very different. And I wonder if you know, getting back to Aaron's point about. It's been his what he's projecting if the if the victory here, the strength that he's projecting is telling the Native American to get out, is the, is the willingness to to say these things uh, that really do appeal to his supporters or some segment of his supporters at least. And and the, the refusal to back down from that kind of rhetoric is in and of itself something that perhaps is drawing people.
5: Uh, well, go ahead. You know, I, th- I think it could be, but ultimately you have to have results you know, there's a deeper issue, I think, also in American government. Our system is not working well. I mean, this is a background condition that led to his rise. Congress has not passed a budget under regular order for 20 years now. Uh, There are many things in this country, infrastructure, for example, that really desperately need to get built, and we're not building it. And so, and that actually is a real Trumpian uh, kind of issue. So I do think that there's a more serious undercurrent of unhappiness with the system that he's he's playing off of. It's just that, you know, I mean, okay, so this is only 100 days into his administration. If he doesn't build those bridges, fix those airports within another couple of years, I think it's going to wear a little thin.
3: Well, we have a couple of folks on the line that we want to get to. We're going to have to take a little break before we do that. Um, But I want you to stay with us. We're talking with Francis Fukuyama about strong men in politics and whether Donald Trump is living up to his own brand as the toughest guy in Washington. We want to hear from you if you were a Trump supporter because you liked his strength. 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255 or tweet us at, at Indivisible Radio. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back.
7: This is Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change.
2: From
3: WNYC Radio, I'm Kai Wright.
2: And I'm Anne McElvoy,
3: here from The Economist. We're talking with Stanford University professor Francis Fukuyama about strong men in politics and whether the Trump administration's recent defeats complicate his own narrative of being the strong leader who can fix Washington. And joining us now is Todd Zwillik, Washington correspondent for WNYC's The Takeaway. Welcome, Todd. It's
8: pleasure. How are you?
3: Very good. We're glad to have you. Uh, so... I want to ask you, Todd, about our premise here, that uh, Trump has had some weakness. Um, And I want to go back a little bit. Steve Bannon famously told the Congressional Political Action Conference last month that the measure of success for this White House wasn't so much about what they got done, but what they take apart. Listen to this. The third, broadly, line of work is
1: what is deconstruction of the administrative state.
3: And if you so i think I think I think the three most important things I think one of the most if you look at these cabinet appointees, they were selected for a reason, and that is the deconstruction. the way
1: the progressive left runs is if they can't get it passed, they're just going to put it in some sort of regulation in a uh, in an agency that's all going to be deconstructed
3: so we're going to get to colors in a second here, but I want you to respond to that and this idea that well maybe. Trump isn't actually failing when you look at it from that perspective. I mean, even on the ACA, right? There's so many things that they can do and have done already just administratively to take apart the ACA.
8: There are parts of this premise from Steve Bannon that do... Coalesce with Republican and conservative philosophy the deconstruction of the administrative state dovetails nicely in some ways with small government that old trope of making government so small that you can drown it in a bathtub some of those cliches that we've heard that that on their face won't make a lot of conservatives and Republican voters uncomfortable. So on the face of it, there's nothing wrong with that from the from the perspective of maybe a Trump voter or even a Trump operative or a Republican operative or Republican voter who wasn't comfortable with Trump, but he's a Republican, so they're getting comfortable with it, all of those things. That, that has clashed with a reality in a very important way uh, on health care, which is uh, – the idea of deconstructing the administrative state sounds great until millions of people are losing benefits and they become aware that the reason they're losing them is because people richer than them are getting a tax cut. And that's what this bill boiled down to. It is one thing to have a long view, which Steve Bannon is famous for a a sort of a long view of this deconstruction or a philosophical view that might be a six, seven, eight or 30 year project for him. And maybe as some have said, uh, Donald Trump is an accessory to that project, not necessarily um, a source of it, and maybe that's the case. But on healthcare, which was which was the main—I mean, one of the main promises of this campaign, certainly the main promise of the last seven years of Republicanism in Washington—it just doesn't fit. And I think that that statement is borne out by a lot of political data, not only the president's poll numbers, but the whole numbers that this bill had before it belly flopped. So so those but, are so two different think, things. You think
3: it lost on policy, not on policy, like that, that this was at an actual policy failure? That oh, the it clearly Republicans-
8: lost on both. It clearly lost on both. People who were aware of the policy, um, frankly, thought it was garbage. And I'm using very strong language, but but this was a bill that polled, Kai, at 17% of, the, of voters before it failed. Barely 40% of Republicans on Obamacare repeal. The reason to be a Republican for the last seven years. So I'm using very strong language, but I've been doing this a long time. I have not seen a bill this high profile fail this poorly. One other occasion, which was a different set of political circumstances, was TARP was Uh, the bank bailout, which had to pass, had to pass, or else the economy wasn't going to melt down, and it didn't. Remember, that bill failed the first time out, and the stock market tanked 777 points, and then they came back the next day, by golly, and Republicans got it done because there was no other choice. The difference here was... There was no stock market to watch tank 777 points, but this was largely the political equivalent for Republicans.
3: So listeners, if you voted Trump for Trump primarily because of his strength, or even if you didn't vote for him, but you really like that aspect of his leadership, what are you thinking now? Uh, both Todd and Francis are saying, hey, this looks bad. Mm-hmm. Do you disagree? Call us 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. And... We want to go to Mike in Dunwoody, Georgia. Mike, welcome to Indivisible. You're on the air.
1: Hey, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. So uh, I I would start out by saying, if, if you want me to just jump right into it. Go for it. Uh, yeah, I started listening to the beginning of the show, and you guys commented on a whole lot, and you went into how uh, you thought your uh, your – Uh, thought, how things were running out. You kept saying, I feel, I think. You know, you kind of, like, laid it out for us. Um, You know, I got to tell you, driving home election night, I didn't think he was going to win, but I, I wanted him to. I voted for him. And I couldn't really tolerate Hillary, nor could I tolerate Obama. It was a rough eight years for me, only because a lot of the things that I felt were done were divisive and it just made me sick that this was happening to my country. And then when he won, I couldn't believe it. And, and driving to work the next day, you know, I really kind of felt good about going to work and really hitting it. And I would just, I would just say, you know, I would caution you. Uh, a lot of people that doubted this guy, you know, they really doubted him and they kind of, you know, think about what he went through with Hillary calling him out and the, uh, tapes on, you know, the whatever show he was on with the Billy Bush guy and all of that. And then he had to go to the uh, dinner in New York with uh, Hillary and they were laughing at him with the, uh, you know, Bishop and everything else. They were laughing at him. Everybody in that room thought they were on really firm footing. And I would be concerned that the American health care bill is still standing if I was a Democrat, only because maybe he wants it to stay. Maybe he wants it to fail. That's, so that's let, my two cents. Let on me that. ask you this,
3: Mike, and I and I agree with you. It, it, it's certainly we have a lot of people have written off Donald Trump a lot of times and been wrong. Uh, but how do you feel right now? You felt great driving home that night after the election. What, what about now? What? Are,
1: I'm completely terrified for my country all the way around, and you know I, I think I and I don't know who's the right answer because our politicians have a lower rating than gonorrhea we're in a lot of trouble i mean when you look at like maxine waters and you know these people that they hold up is like you know avant-garde and they're really cutting edge and you know boy they really stood up for something they stood for something 30 years ago they haven't done anything in ever except run around like santa claus pulling out free stuff for vote.
2: And well, that's I'm all uh, yeah,
1: about immigration. That's the first thing. I'm all uh, about immigration.
2: I'm still in recovery from your earlier metaphor there, um, which uh, it livened up uh, things in the in the studio here. But uh, can I just throw some of what what you've said back to Francis? I mean that that that's a really interesting example where someone is you know is both attracted to that side of of Trump that is prepared to go for, it, is prepared to fight back, is outside the ordinary, Francis, and then at the same time and says. I also find this worrying and I can see it, you know, where it ends up with someone being very unpopular and very concerning. Is that only a Trump phenomenon or do we see it with a lot of other autocrats too?
5: Uh, Well, I think that a lot of um, autocrats thrive on polarisation. And certainly Trump has done a lot to increase the level of polarization, just the way he ran the campaign and, you know, the issues that he uh, brought up. Uh, I think, however, that ultimately you're not successful until you can bring, you know, a really solid popular base of support behind the kinds of things that you want to do. And that's the area where I just don't see how this is working out for him because if you look at where he's gone you know, he still continues to hold rallies. I mean, it's very unusual for a sitting president to hold campaign-style rallies, and Donald Trump has done that. He's only done it in red states that voted for him. You know, he's not reached out, you know, beyond that, let's say, 40% of Americans that, you know, that, that were his supporters. And I think until you do that and you try to govern as the president of the whole country, I don't think in a democracy you're going to get the kind of legitimacy that you really need to kind of blast away all the obstacles to really getting your agenda accomplished. So I have yet to see that, you know, that really coalescing or crystallizing.
3: Todd, what about that? It, it, thinking about how that plays out in Congress and him trying to get—you you, you, know—Francis is talking about getting voters, but trying to get other Republicans on board. Is—is is, does that matter as well?
8: And this was like the the perfect way to set up that very question because you you had the caller who's absolutely right. Donald Trump has defied expectations at every step of the way here, including mine. I was wrong about this election, and I'm my, part of my hair shirting is I have to say it on the air every time I'm given the chance. I was wrong about this election. I thought Trump would lose. I was wrong. He beat me in that sense. Um, Fra- Francis is also correct that this hasn't crystallized at all, and it brings me to this thought when you talk about Congress and politics more broadly. Um, succeeding as president and succeeding at politics on this level is not the same thing as being CEO it is not the same thing as running a business it's not the same thing as being super popular on television or even running a successful political campaign there are dozens hundreds and thousands of competing interests it is necessary to know those interests and to corral them uh, the one of the areas of intrigue and speculation going into this presidency and it is still young so this is not an autopsy a, this is a mere by, 68 days this is not an autopsy the, I I I am willing to do an autopsy on the health care bill itself because that 's the first you know sort of step, and it was a failure so so we can speak up until that point and maybe on to, to the president 's political situation so far um Getting, getting the support to pass something so complex is way more complicated than having a very powerful Twitter feed. It is way more complicated than shaming people and way more complicated than coercion, which is scaring members of Congress – into thinking that you can turn their voters against them back home. That's really what that coercion aspect is about. Now, there wasn't a whole lot of that in this healthcare bill, but you go around and Capitol Hill, as I often do, and you always ask members, they start to buck against the president and you say, are you afraid of tweets? Are you afraid of tweets? They'll say, oh, I'm not afraid of tweets. I know my district. Oh, they were afraid of tweets. <laughs> they're afraid of what that might mean. Now, are do they, they... Do they
3: smell blood in the water now? Are like, they
8: afraid of tweets anymore? Right. Many of them were not afraid of tweets when they turned around and tanked this bill because they had safety in numbers, right? You can't get all of us. They're like sheep packed into a... You know, the ones in the center aren't worried about getting eaten by the wolf. It's the one on the edges. So I point you toward maybe moderate... Republicans in districts like the one I grew up in in central Pennsylvania Hershey a guy named Charlie Dent who you've seen on your TV a lot lately the leader of the Tuesday group the dwindling numbers of House Republican moderates he stuck his neck out to to lead against this bill because he didn't like the Medicaid changes and he also didn't like the fact of what he knows I'm from that district lots of working people many of whom voted for Trump are gonna get kicked off their health care and he has lots of lower income folks in Harrisburg and Dauphin County so- who are gonna kicked off Medicaid and and he's one of the people then I'm well, telling you who has to be afraid of those tweets and it seems like right now he's probably not well to your point about it's complicated
3: tidy on Twitter says Trump's image of his own strength is his greatest weakness he doesn't have enough humility to be teachable so she seems to, to agree let's go to Scott in Auburn Alabama Scott welcome to Indivisible you're on in the air
6: I
4: do thank you uh, I was a never Trump conservative and I decided after the election was over, instead of being sad at the uh, idiot that we'd elected, that I would rejoice in the things that I thought he might actually have helped on. And so I think that the the, the thing that probably bothers me the most as I listen to the punditry class, which I have listened to now ever since the election, is how badly they misunderstand the American people and what gave us Donald Trump. Um the idea that everybody's a poor Rust Belt white guy who secretly under has a grudge against immigrants and minorities, and that's the base, is a is a condescension that I find kind of funny, actually. Mm. So politically, I suppose Donald Trump and I share some common uh, enemies, if you will, politically. And, and so he's shown he's shown a light badly, I think, but on the the hypocrisy of the press that um, is been in the crawl of many of us who are maybe even thoughtful conservatives who have watched the you know the huffy Post world and the New york Times opinion page and the and the you know, New Yorker et cetera et cetera, and the cool class all the cool kids think one way, so the rest of us have been taught that if we that there's only two choices: you either hate poor people or you want to give them more money you either Hate immigrants, or you want there to be no consequences for breaking the law. You either hate black people, or you have to agree that some of the things on campus and speech and in microaggressions, this false dichotomy that 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 the the condescending, um, well, I call it a a cultural condescension that the mm-hmm. folks who run this country for so long have. That's what gave us Donald Trump. So, in as much as he has. Uh, push back against that. Howeverly, however, however ineffective he has done it, I'm happy that certain things are on the table. A good example is tonight. You guys used the word autocrat over and over again. He's not an autocrat. Our system doesn't allow an autocrat. We just he just proved it. But you guys have it both ways, really. If he was successful. And he'd shoved five things through immediately. We'd be reading ten more articles a day at the Atlantic on how Trump's going to, you know, block the sun and he's going to endanger. <laughs> well, maybe we'd be animals. reading them at the Economist.
3: Let's let's plug our let's plug yeah. our folks. Please,
2: can but, we get the plugs can, in the right okay?
3: <laughs> But hang on, let me interrupt you for a second, Scott. And I want to sure because I want to put that point to Francis um, is. is are we is is he in fact an autocrat? Are are we using that word too loosely? Is that I mean you, I don't know that you use that word. That's what we did. Uh, is does Scott have a point about this notion of an autocrat? He's not really an autocrat.
5: Uh, autocrat is really not the right word. It it implies a kind of worldview, an authoritarian worldview that you start with, and I don't think that that's really Donald Trump. I think that, you know, I would say he's a populist who basically believes in democracy. He takes the democratic mandate, but he doesn't like, you know, he doesn't like rules. And when things get in his way, you know, I think this was very clear in his business career. If there's rules that get in the way, like you got to pay your contractors according to the contract, he tries to get around them. And so I think he's kind of ended up doing things that, you know, the genuine autocrats do, like, for example... You don't get good coverage in the media, so what do you do? You try to delegitimate and demonize you know, the entire uh, press that, uh, that's out there. So I think there's I'll a proclivity that a in that direction, but, I, but the whole, my whole argument has been we do have a constitutional system that makes it really, really difficult for autocrats to emerge, and I think that constitutional system is operating, and we've seen it operate in, in the first hundred days. Scott, I heard you wanted to respond. We have very quickly. At,
4: at, 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 the, at the most, he's a wannabe autocrat, and our wonderful system that has been given to us will not allow it. And so all of the uh, – all those words, they need to change words on that. And, and as far as demonizing the media, I have watched you know Saturday Night Live write clever lines for Hillary so she'll seem hip and then be covered by an MSNBC anchor the next morning I meet the press in the following Monday on the Today Show that brought up as another example of how cool Hillary is. Many of us are sophisticated enough not to just buy off on this yes, Donald Trump's an idiot. We know that. Yes, his demonization of the press is annoying. But there are kernels of truth which cause people like me to at least enjoy some of the problems. Thank y'all.
3: Thank you, Scott. Todd, very, very quickly. Do we, well, we don't have time for that, actually. I'm going to put this to you in after the break. We're, we're going to follow up on Scott. You're, we're talking with Stanford University professor Francis Fukuyama and Washington correspondent for WNYC's The Takeaway, Todd Zwillick, about strongman politics and whether Donald Trump is living up to his own branding as the toughest guy around. 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. We will be back after a short break.
7: This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change.
3: From WNYC Radio, I'm Kai Wright.
2: And I'm Anne McElvoy from The Economist.
3: And I want to pick up where we left off before the break with you, Todd. Uh, Our caller, Scott, says, you know, listen, never Trump conservative, doesn't really agree with him on a lot of policy stuff, but he sure likes hearing him telling us to shut up, you know, and he sure likes hearing uh, him put some of these... Liberal elites who look down, who, who have these, these these knee-jerk ideas about what a Trump supporter is, put us in our place. And I wonder, thinking about that and that the politics of that and the strength of that, he is delivering on that promise day in and day out. The,
8: so kernels of truth he talked mm-hmm. about, and I think there are kernels of truth in what he had to say. Uh, and I think uh, there's a lot of fog around what he had to say, too, quite frankly, as a member of the media. There are truths in there that that I think we all have to hear and not just if we're fans of the Huffy Post world uh, or the Atlantic or even the National Review, who was no f- friend of Donald Trump's either uh, As as part of the media elite crowd. Look, Donald Trump, um, this gets back to the issue also of autocracy, which is also part of that call. Is Donald Trump an autocrat? Probably not. His autocratic tendencies when we're talking about the press, I think are real and are very troubling. And it's not just to be brushed off with saying the system doesn't allow it. There, are, there is good data now, social scientific data and political science data, saying that Americans are more comfortable with autocracy and with less democracy than ever before. Donald Trump's attitude toward the press is part of this. It's not just the old story, which is a very old story. From American politicians shooting the messenger and vilifying a press because they don't like the coverage that they've gotten. That is not a new story. Donald Trump didn't invent that story. He has brought it maybe to a different level. What is new is somebody at the level of politics that Donald Trump is at um, basically... Referring to the press as the enemy of the state, the enemy of the people, while recruiting forms of state media, which he has done, not only through some outlets like Breitbart, to an extent Fox News, pointing viewers as he's president toward broadcasts on Fox News where people are about to attack people who used to be enemies of the president, like the speaker. They said the president turned around and said that was a coincidence after the health care bill failed. Is the president an autocrat? Probably not. Does he have aspirations towards that? He's showing signs of it. And and a lot of it is shown through the press. And here's my last point that I will make on that. There is a lot of critique about the failures of the media, of the press in this campaign. What we focused on, what we chose to maximize and minimize, what got airtime, how much free media Donald Trump got, um, and maybe liberal bias in some quarters, um, no question. And there are lots and lots of... Uh, critiques to be had. Donald Trump, however, during the transition in particular and part of the campaign, has made the basic functions of journalism into political acts at this point. He has made truth telling about him and his administration Uh, Into a political act because he is willing to attack the truth, basic truths, in a way that no other president ever has to call it fake, to call it the enemy of the people, and to say that uh, journalists are the most dishonest people who want to destroy the country. Now, that makes you as a journalist make a choice. If you're going to report a story, have a source and tell the truth, and then be willing to be attacked for being an enemy of the people— I would turn that around and ask if that's an autocratic tendency and what that means for freedom of the press.
2: You know, Todd, I'm guessing that you might get a bit more of this uh, as President Trump comes under more, more pressure. Um, and really something I'd like to put to Francis is how do you think, Francis, that this will play on the world stage? Because when Donald Trump feels weaker, that is probably the time at which he is going to, to lash out in the way that Todd describes. And, and some people will, uh, perhaps like uh, Scott, our previous caller, might say to an extent, uh, the liberal media have it coming. But a lot of people will be concerned too along the lines that, that Todd has just described. Do you think it matters in the outside world whether Todd oh, is In the weak outside or, world. or not?
5: Oh, in the outside world, it matters hmm. much, much more than domestically, because The coin of the realm in international relations really is credibility, both in terms of your enemies and your friends. Your friends want to know whether you're actually going to stand with them because they have to make choices based on that. And your enemies are going to calibrate what they do and what they think they can get away with based on whether you think you're going to keep uh, your word. Uh, And in that respect, I think that he's, you know, he's done so much to undermine I mean, nobody knows what, you know, to, how to take, whether they should take him seriously. So, for example, this, this ban against taking laptops on these flights from a number of Middle Eastern countries into the United States, was that actually something that was based on something real that the intelligence community felt, mm. you know, was a serious threat? Or was this just part of Trump's, you know, craziness about that part of the world? We don't know. But Uh, I think it goes,
2: it's a bit like, you know, that that, uh, strange old quantum phrase about Schrodinger's cat. I don't think world leaders maybe do quite know what to make make of him at all. So there's a bit of a dark magic as well. Things that would be damaging to others just don't seem to stick uh, on Trump. And I wonder how you think this will play in London, Berlin, Moscow, Beijing, as we turn the globe around a bit. Do we find that more autocratic uh, leaders probably understand his mindset better than democratic ones?
5: Well, I think they they like him a lot because he's friendly to them. So why shouldn't you know why shouldn't they <laughs> like him? So I, I just think that you know if I were Putin, uh, well, I'm Putin. Did but you just said he was you know.
2: unreckonable. That means you think he's unreckonable to some, but not others.
5: No, I didn't say he's unreckonable. I, I just think that lack well, credibility. His, his credibility, you know, is 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 really not great, uh, and that will make a big difference when people are trying to make these. Uh, these calculations. And so, uh, you know, in a crisis when people are trying to play this game of chicken, you know, it's going to be very hard. Now, he's got this theory that Richard Nixon had to some extent that if you show that you're unpredictable and a little bit crazy, it's a good, you know, bargaining position. Uh, That works under certain controlled circumstances, but there are plenty of other cases where actually knowing exactly that the United States is going to deliver on a promise is really, really important. And I think that's mm. the the danger that we're facing right now.
2: And we've seen it a little bit in the, the dance, the early dance with China, where sometimes you seem to go into quite a forward position and, and over the one China policy, particularly, uh, and then pull back. And I wondered what you made of that from President Xi's play when he spoke at, at Davos. And I heard him talking to the high and mighty of, of the political world there. President Xi seemed to be saying, look, basically, I can run the show now. What I say goes to someone like that. Trump, as you know, has been outlined and, and Todd spoke in detail earlier about it, is showing that he can't do that. The checks and balances still thwart an American president in the way they don't do the big guy in Beijing.
5: Uh, well, I think they're less important in foreign policy. Uh, it's very hard to know you know, what to make of his China policy at the moment, because He doesn't have a staff. He's not really outlined, uh, you know, a clear uh, policy, except to the extent that he's given all these signals that he wants to walk away from positions that the United States has established as a leader, uh, that it means that China has more carte blanche to do things. So withdrawing from the TPP virtually on the first day of his administration, the TPP was created as an anti-Chinese economic zone, uh, and so when you walk away from that, it it sends this very strange signal that basically China is now free to organize Asia uh, as they see fit. And so mm-hmm. I do think that there are going there's already been these you sort know,
2: unintended consequences.
5: Yes. Let's bring in someone who I think has something to say about this
3: autocratic business that we've been circling around. Francis from Jacksonville, Florida. Francis, you're on yeah. Indivisible. Welcome.
7: Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I was um, riding in my car to bre- grab something to eat and I heard that whole conversation and I thought they'll never take my call. So thank you for taking it. <laughs> well, we've that. taken it, Francis. I, I, I actually sat here when I got back and, and looked up autocracy, autocratic. And I think from that viewpoint, I think um, Trump is autocratic because he he is a businessman who has only run his own business, where he could tell people what to do, when to do it, how to do it, and if he didn't like that, then you're out of here. And you and 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 I don't know that he understands that that's not how you govern. As a matter of fact, I think that in order to to get around that, I read today that he's uh, put his son-in-law. In charge of a department building government that's going to tear down government so that it is run like a business, and that you cannot do because it defies the the the, the absolute definition of government and governing. That the 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 be having a business, running that business being the owner, be having someone give you a million dollars, and then you build that by building skyscrapers in New York, that's going to make you a billionaire. It doesn't make you smart. And we know he's not smart by the way he just expresses himself.
3: Francis, the, the, I,
7: I, I, And so the, uh, when, you, when you talk about the autocracy, I believe in the definition that he is autocratic by that definition Um, And based on his background as a businessman and the fact that you and I I
3: think I think we've got it, Francis. I thank you very much for that clarification. Uh, Todd, you were I think you were going to quickly clarify the the point about Jared Kushner.
8: Oh, uh, no, it was an interesting development today. I uh, well, you know, since the Huffington Post was was invoked and disparaged earlier, they had a headline about that story today saying that Donald Trump went to Jared which I thought was <laughs> quite clever, yeah. um, it, it's, an, it's, it's an exercise. Look, again, right over the plate for republicanism. So trying to fit the Trump phenomenon into traditional republicanism is really one of the major subtexts here, one of the major you know, narratives that we're talking about. You saw that project fail with the health care bill, right, that Paul Ryan's dream, his, his dream of, of, of capping Medicaid, turning it into a block grant, lowering entitlements, um, get, getting rid of Obamacare, the Paul Ryan dream clashed with the Trumpian reality. Okay, Uh, putting the son-in-law in in charge of, again, a major reduction in government, small enough to make it drown in a bathtub, is something that that uh, Paul Ryan ideological likes would love to hear. Can this be executed is the main question you have to now take away from the failure of the health care bill, the the. The political banner of the party that Donald Trump has has co-opted for his presidency, for his victory, uh, has shown a, a failure in the first instance with the health care bill. This now calls into question their other... Uh, parts of their agenda tax reform shrinking government infrastructure you name it that's where we're headed there they have
3: there is a long road ahead it is
8: again only 68 days
3: i want to get to david in marietta georgia because he wants to talk about the cabinet which and i think that's something we need to squeeze in here before we finish david welcome to indivisible
6: oh thanks so much for having me on so many talking points you're doing a great job and um to me, uh when I when I mentioned that Trump was like Mussolini in, in the sense that Mussolini had a historical perspective of himself as a latter day Roman Emperor whose worldview eventually morphed into that of Adolf Hitler, uh Steve Bannon is Trump's Adolf Hitler. I think uh in my and I, I know you're probably laughing, but uh his cabinet picks were so are so extreme from uh Jeff Sessions to uh Betsy DeVoe to it's just there's no perspective and, on what reality is, David. I gather and,
3: I gather that you had supported Trump as as a voter. Is that correct?
6: I did. I, I, I did because I proxy because uh, I couldn't support Hillary. Um, I thought Trump might be better. Let's, and I, I supported him from that standpoint. I did vote for him. My wife voted for him. She still likes him, but she's sitting right here glaring at me. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I tell her we head. said hi. Um, <laughs> Well, (laughs) I just, uh, you know, um, uh, in that sense, I did support him. And, uh, And I thought, well, maybe he can, you know, pull a rabbit out of a hat. Maybe he can learn to get along with people. Maybe, you know, he has something and it's been one disaster after another. Can not, I, just put a question?
2: Pr- could, could I just put a question back to you that might be yes, a yes, possible please. rabbit, uh, just, just to get your take on it, uh, and that's whether he wouldn't be better now, really, to, to just go very strongly for tax reform because the upsides of that from the Trumpian perspective and indeed from the Republican Party more generally uh, are bigger than they were clearly from, you know, from starting with health care before he was in any state ready for such a, a complex debate that needed all that circles squaring. Is there a way back to your heart for him if he goes hard for the kind of tax reform that Republicans would have wanted?
6: Uh, not so much tax reform. Reform that is such a, a big uh, goal. I think if he switched right now and said we're going to do the infrastructure, all all is forgiven. I think he would he would uh, um, coalesce his base better. I think that uh, everybody wants infrastructure. Forget the tax reform for right now. He does the infrastructure. I, I think he's on the right path and, and he can redeem himself. Other than that, if he tries tax reform. It's going to be the same mess, the same battle, and people are really getting tired of it.
8: Hate to throw, I'm going to throw just a tiny bit of cold water on that very quickly from the bowels of Capitol Hill, and I won't get too far into procedure. Infrastructure is very hard to do now because of budget baselines and the way that Donald Trump wants to do infrastructure. They want to do that. There are reconciliation rules and there are tax rules around all of this that come into play. However, part of the backup now that you have because health care failed is that the budget baseline has changed. All of these things are now harder. There are real-world, really boring consequences to this failure. <laughs> and another one that's also major true. is that everyone wants infrastructure. It's true. Donald Trump doesn't want to do it in the same way that all those Democrats, all the Schumerian people out there who want infrastructure, they want to spend money. The thing that everyone used to agree on spending money on was roads, bridges, water projects, and sewers because they're in every district and every state across America, the chambers and the unions. Everybody wants it. Donald Trump has not proposed to spend. He has proposed to cut taxes to get it, and that sends the Marian liberals running for the corners, and it drives the unions nuts. So they're not near consensus on that, even though you'd think they would be.
3: Well, and also, Francis, I believe you wrote uh, in your op-ed that part of the problem is that they cannot also, they can't give out the treats in the course of uh,
5: of legislating of, of the no, sort earmarks. that Todd is talking about any longer. And it, 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 That That's was your right. point they right. Well. They've taken away earmarks. I uh, am not sure that, I mean, I actually agreed with the caller that... <clears throat> infrastructure is the one real populist part of his agenda that he could accomplish. From what they've said about that, it's not clear to me that they're actually not willing to spend money. I have this political fantasy that, you know, Trump could actually rescue his presidency if he actually went for a trillion dollar infrastructure, you know, either borrowed or, you know, done with tax money. Uh, It's going to bust the budget in the long run. But uh, it would be a way of actually that's the only short-term way he could actually generate jobs for you know the people that voted for him but the only way he can get to that is by trying to make a deal with the democrats uh, and i think that would be healthy for the whole country cuz he'd basically you know the biggest obstacle to doing that is the tea party wing of uh in you know especially in the in the house of representatives and if trump wants to be a true populist i think he's got to make a choice uh, something like that Francis, I'm
3: going to cut you off to get one more very, very quick caller in. William from Princeton, New Jersey, because, William, you weren't old enough to vote. Is that Sorry. correct? William, yes, you're, you're, go ahead.
1: Yes, sir. I uh, I just turned 18, actually, in February. Um, but I'm a big fan of you, Mr. Francis Fukuyama. I, I've read quite a bit about your um uh pieces from your book on state building so i um i i was not old enough to vote but personally i i was on the fence um you know i i've since i started following politics i uh personally have been self described uh republican conservative but i was um you know i supported gary johnson more firstly uh, D- donald
0: trump he, he's certainly a political outsider and um
3: this, we got to cut this. you off, William. I'm sorry. <laughs> thanks to both William, thanks to William, thanks to Francis Fukuyama and Todd Zwilich for joining us. Tomorrow on Indivisible, WNYC's Brian Lehrer talks to constitutional scholar Jeffrey Stone about the nation's shifting, shifting attitudes towards sex and sexuality and the impact of those pol- attitudes on politics and law. I'm Kai Wright.
2: And I'm Ann McElvoy from The Economist.
3: And we will talk to you next week.
0: Support for Indivisible is provided in part by Emerson Collective, the Ford Foundation, and the Jacob and Valeria Langloth Foundation.
1: If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it, and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.